Hello, my name is Elliot Maya, and I will be having a conversation with Anna Keyes for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is July 14th in 2017, and this is being recorded at Anna's home. So would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, um, I'm Anna Keyes. I'm 23, I'm a transgender woman. I just graduated from undergrad and I'm currently finding work here in New York City as a filmmaker. Amazing. So you just graduated undergrad. Where mm -hmm. did you go to school? I went to Emerson College in Boston. In Boston. So how was that experience for you? How was navigating that social space? It was navigating Emerson was somewhat two-part because I came in male presenting and it was actually really difficult at first because it's a very extroverted school and over my first few years there I was forced to like look at myself and realize I'm kind of presenting this fake person in public spaces and it took until four years into the school that I began to understand myself as trans and after that the school was amazing because it was very accepting um, and I was able to grow in my last year there a lot like I felt like I grew um, I don't know I feel like I did more maturing from 22 to 23 than I did from like 13 to 22 <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was like, yeah, so the school in that period for me was everything I needed. So was there any kind of trans community you were accessing at Emerson, or? There was a trans community. Um, I would say mostly the trans people I connected with was through social media. Interesting. Um, Emerson's very queer friendly, but that kind of ends up meaning it's mostly white gay men. Huh. Um, and there is also a like a femme um, arts community, but it's also mostly cis women. Hmm. So I wouldn't say it's the most necessarily trans friendly, but my best friend is um, a trans man. So uh, I did meet them at Emerson. And yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't. They're non-binary, but they're taking testosterone. Um, Anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, so yes and no, I guess. Yeah. So what kind of social media were you using to meet trans people and how, how are you even finding them and interacting with them? There was this Facebook group called Bad Femmes mm. that my friend Reed added me to way before I even identified as non-binary. Um, and she, I guess, had a sense that I was femme but I didn't even really identify mm -hmm. that way yet. And it was a small, like, 150-person group where it was very much like a group therapy in a way. Um, and I very much posted there, interacted with the community, which was mostly, again, cis women, but there were a few trans women there. Uh, um, this one woman, Drew, was, like, my trans godmother <laughs> she like really kind of showed me the ropes from the beginning in a way um 
when I had all these initial fears about what was my family going to say, like, how do I afford hormones? Um, so that was a wonderful place for me. Um, I was kind of publicly out there before I was out, out. It was, so it was like a kind of a testing ground. Wow. So in this Facebook group, you kind of called it like a group therapy. Is there, would you like to talk more about that function and what it did for you? Sure. It was small enough that it felt like a community and I think it was a group therapy in a way because um, social media, I feel you often are putting up a front Mm -hmm. and you're not always, you're not really getting into all of your messy life issues because you're projecting this this perfected image of yourself. But in this group, I felt like you could be completely open about anything that's happening in your life, even if it's potentially problematic because um, the people that respond and are gonna interact with you, it's not really out of a judgmental angle. Um, I think everyone there, I don't know. It it was just a place, it was like no filter, I guess is what I'm saying. And um, I I felt like I could be completely open there first. Whereas just in public life, like, public life for me became also, like, this very filtered, like, I I felt like I, I mean, I felt like I had to filter and repress my feminist from middle school. So this was, like, a place for me to really start being open, open, which I wasn't for a very long time. Did you feel like you had two selves you had to mitigate? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I took this... I took a queer theory class the summer of my sophomore year at Emerson, and the teacher talked a lot about um, the double life, mm-hmm. the private pu- versus public. Um, like we read like Picture of Dorian Gray, which was a lot about that, um, and we kind of did like a queer interpretation of it. Anyway, back to your question. Yes, I actually have this note. <laughs> that I wrote to myself, I think summer of sophomore year. It's in all caps for some reason. And it says, the central issue in your life, Andy, is that there's private Andy and then there's public Andy and the tension between those two is what creates all of your problems. And this is like a year and a half prior to me even, yeah, essentially putting the label to my identity. Um, but I did know there was something up. Interesting. Yeah. So what was that process like for you? You, You've mentioned a couple times of there was a period where you didn't know or weren't sure, and then then there was a period afterwards. Was there like an instigating experience that made you say, aha? (laughs) In a way, yeah. It was definitely slower than like a light bulb moment, but... I tried on a dress for the first time my, the fall of my senior year. Um, I was at Emerson for five years, so in a way I had two senior years. So my first senior year, I tried on a dress for the first time and that was somewhat of an illuminating experience, but I still like, like all of what I knew of myself was what I thought was a man. Mm-hmm. So. In a way, I feel like the actual identification was like a slow peeling away process. 
um, until one night um, where my girlfriend Delilah just told, like, we just told each other that we loved each other and it was getting late and I couldn't sleep. And I went up to my rooftop and it was like misty out and it was like 2 a.m. and I felt like, I don't know, I felt very alive. Like the water was like, rather, <laughs> I don't know, the moisture was like building on my face and I kind of looked up in the sky and for some, in that moment, I was like, okay, you're a woman. Like that's what wow. it is. Like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and what, how did you feel after that thought? I, I felt very clairvoyant. I then walked, I lived in Alston, which is um, right outside Boston. It's very much like college kid dominated. Um, and yeah, I just walked around the streets and no one was really out. Um, but I, yeah, I just felt clear is the best way to describe it. And I won't say I maintained that, you know, because I think, I don't know, I still get doubt, you know, mm -hmm. about my identity. It's not clear 100% of the time. Um, I was socialized as a man mm -hmm. or experienced male socialization. So like, I struggle with that all the time. Um, like I'm always kind of doubting whether or not like, is something I'm doing what I was is this me or is this what I was kind of told is right? And I kind of still struggle with that. Um, but I find I have moments of clarity that were like that night. Um, and that's like my center, I guess. Do you have an example of a moment where you struggled, you struggled with, you know, is, is this a project, a product of socialization or who you are? Sure. Um, When I'm, there was a night where um, we hosted a femme art um, gallery night, essentially, mm -hmm. at my old apartment. And I couldn't help but feeling in the back of my mind like I was invasive to mm. this space as someone that's quote-unquote like male-bodied and um, um, sorry I'm not sure if I'm describing this the best way but um, I think that's what I struggle with sometimes it's just when I'm in groups with cis women that are bonding over their girlhoods mm. um, I can't connect with that at all in a lot of ways and I think back on what my childhood looked like and it was not like their childhood at all. And that's when I feel the divide most strongly, probably. What did your childhood look like? Um, I, I was a very joyful, curious person for, I think, the first 11 years of my life. And I found I mostly connected with women. Um, but then I got really severely bullied in middle school in seventh grade. 
And I feel like that is, um, I can actually kind of pinpoint, that's where I feel like the split happened between public and private. Like before that point, I felt like I was very much the same person in both places. But after that, I adapted um, kind of a male persona to just fit in with the other people that I was supposed to, you know, and there weren't really out queer people where I was from. Mm. So I didn't have that group to connect with, so I just had to kind of make do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I, I don't even remember, honestly, a lot of my childhood after that moment. Hmm. Like my teenage years, like it's really repressed. Um, Some things I remember um, because I think there were moments that I connected with other women. Um, But a lot of it, I think, was kind of a farce in a way which is kind of hard to wrap my mind around sometimes because it's such a long time but um it's a little hard to look back on that time in my life because I feel like I wasn't really a person where did you grow up I grew up in Morristown New Jersey oh is that a big town it's relatively big as far as um maybe a suburban town goes it it has like a city center to it and it's essentially kind of a commuter town for New York um, or it's becoming more and more so that but I think it was like a decent size like my high school is 1500 kids um, but I lived kind of uh, on the outskirts in a way Oops. can I take that? Yeah. hi mom <laughs> um, so yeah I think my town was I would say of an average size, but it has, it's liberal in some ways, but it has like Republican representatives. So I I feel like there is somewhat of a conservative like atmosphere to it and definitely an atmosphere where like it wasn't okay to be queer in any way. Um, Yeah, there's only one, in my school of 1500 kids, there are two out queer people I can think of um so that was the atmosphere and for me I think the reason why I'm really repressed a lot of that time in my life is um I didn't think I didn't even know what my authentic self really was but even if I was conscious of it it wasn't really an option for me to be that person then Mm -hmm. um or else I really feel like I would have had probably no social life um, like it just, yeah, yeah. it would have led to a lot more bullying and I, and I couldn't take that. So I kind of like acted. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any siblings? Yeah. I have a brother. A brother? Yeah. Was he or your family like aware, aware of, um, you being bullied or your difficulties you were having? I wasn't very open about it. Okay. So no. Yeah. Um, he was also bullied, I think, when he was younger, and I think maybe did a similar thing in a way, where I think it's common for a lot of men to um, kind of form this outer shell of confidence and broiness <laughs> that I think isn't really true for him and still isn't, but you do that to um, protect yourself from getting harassed or bullied by guys that want to uphold the man card code 
all that bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I wanted to move towards the direction of your art. Um, okay. In the conversation of this in, inner life that you've developed. Um, and wanted to know what, how does that appear, if at all, in your work? And when did you start making art? And what kind of art do you do? So I guess I started making art very late in my life. Well, in a way. Um, I, I, was, I did music for a long time, but I was, was frustrated with it because I couldn't really write songs. Um, but I made, I helped a friend with a film my junior year of high school, and I like, kind of fell in love with film. So I did a lot of film my senior year of high school, and when it came down to um, deciding between schools, I was either going to study psychology or a film. And I had to kind of sit down myself and say like, okay, film makes me happy, let's just, let's do this. And my mom supported me in that decision. So film is very much my art form and I feel like I really, I developed my artistic voice at Emerson and I've always loved comics and graphic novels um, and animation but I started more so with cinematography, so I was interested in visual art and the visual aspect of filmmaking. So I would largely, for the first few years at Emerson, be a cinematographer for other people's films and work on my own work, but I was feeling kind of dissatisfied because I was like adding to their work, but I feel like I wasn't really expressing my own voice, partly because I didn't really, I didn't really feel like I had a voice to express in a way. Um, but I made two projects that I feel really um, really kind of showed that I had an understanding of me being trans without like putting the words mm -hmm. to it yet. So I had one film called Attention, um, A Space Tension, um, where it was essentially a, like a, a, a horror short about a kid having this tension between his um, authentic self, which is when he's talking to this um, friend, this, this girl in his class, versus his like performative self, which is like a class clown, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so to me that... I'm sorry, I'm maybe getting to... Okay, let's go. Okay. <laughs> Um, to me, in a way, I, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. Can I apologize for you Um, so I felt like in a way that doing that project was the beginning, beginning of me understanding what was going on, um, internally for me. And then Let's see, my first senior year, I um, I was in a directing image and sound class, and I don't even know what sparked it, but I think, you know, I, I started dating Delilah in October, and she was someone, she was like the first relationship I was in where I could express myself fully 
no filter all the time. And it was very quick within the first month of our relationship that I realized how femme I feel inside and how I was able to express that around her. So I did this project called Transition, which was an experimental short film that illustrated the monotonous repetition I felt like my life was while male presenting, and then the the process of having to kind of dive into myself, look at the root of what I feel is my core, uh, see it for what it is, and then come out and present that to the world, as opposed to the um, root, the routine that I thought I had to present. Um, and then I think what probably the most impactful um, class I ever took was a uh, personal documentary class, mm. which, you know, I'd always been behind the camera, but in this class, our teachers basically asked us to, our teacher, rather, Laurel Greenberry, asked us to film ourselves, asked us to look at our own lives and, like, find the stories within that. And that class was life-changing because... It was only then that I was forced to really, really, literally look at myself. And at the time when I began the class, I was identifying as non-binary. I was still trying to figure out, I'm like, am I really trans? I didn't play with dolls. Like, I didn't, I'm not fitting any of this narrative that I've always heard about trans women. But then when I did this film, I... By the end of that class, I identified as a trans woman. Um, and it, in finding my voice through that class, I felt, I felt all of a sudden that I had a purpose for my art because I, I knew that I wanted to illustrate that trans narratives aren't the mainstream narrative that we know them to be. And that it's, it's very nuanced. Um, even our relationships with our past are nuanced, our relationships with our family are nuanced, and I try to show that there are those difficult moments with your family where they may see you as the gender you were assigned, and it, it hurts them. It's almost essentially a mourning process for them mm-hmm. in, in losing the idea of your for me, my male self, but that they're people too, and they're, it's a transitional process for them too. And I want to just illuminate that and that, um, yeah, there's, it, there's just a lot of complexity to it and nuance that I feel like is completely lost in mainstream narratives, especially when we only think of one narrative, which mm-hmm. is they play with dolls, they wore dresses. Um, they wore lipstick. They went into their mom. You know, yeah. like I didn't. I didn't do any of that personally. But are all women like that? No. So like, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, did your family go through that mourning process, and what was that like? If so, I think so. 
I think they did and are still. Um, so during that class, um, it was February because it was a spring semester. I remember I called my mom and she had gotten me an H&M gift card for Christmas. And I used that card to get a dress, which is actually a scene in the personal documentary. And that was my way of coming out to her. I was like, mom, I got a dress. And their first reaction was, they didn't really have a total understanding. They thought trans women were drag queens, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of older people do, yeah. which is really sad. <laughs> um, but they, my dad's first reaction was like, it's because you're at Emerson. It's because you're at this liberal place. And I'm like, oh God. <laughs> um, and my mom's reaction too was like, they were so confused themselves because they're like, you didn't play with dolls. You didn't wear dresses. You didn't wear makeup. I'm like, but do all women do those things? No, like I'm a different, I'm different than that. Mm -hmm. um, but I still identify this way. So that took them months to kind of wrap their heads around. And my mom, I think, came around a little sooner than my dad. Um, but it's a very slow process. And I was told by other trans women at the time when I was feeling very depressed about it, that just like time and exposure is what it's about. Like, expose them to the self you identify as and give them some time. And it honestly really worked. I think now my parents are in a much different place. My mom gave me, like, a femme sweater for Christmas. Um, and my dad, who at one point said, um, it deeply embarrassed him. And that, I don't know, I'm not sure if I want this in here, but he said... Um, he had a nightmare that I showed up at his job in a dress, which really made me really sad and depressed and felt a little hopeless about this familial situation. And I didn't really think I'd have a relationship with him after he said that. Because like, how can you have a relationship with someone that feels so embarrassed by your existence? But he really kind of came around in about three or four months after that when he, we were sitting on the couch watching a movie and he turned to me and he said, you know, like, no matter what I feel about this, I know that it's ultimately harder on you and I love you and I support you. And that was like total saving grace. And um, yeah, so yeah, I think it was a bit of a mourning process. Um, I think it's especially harder in a way for him because when you're transitioning, um, from male to female or whatever, um, it's like he's losing a son in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. He's losing the person who he thought of as a son. And it's kind of like, I mean, in a way you're like moving out of their camp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how I kind of think of it. And I think it's harder in a way um, for that. And I know that from my friend that just started tea, like their mom, they're having a very difficult time with their mom. And I think it's a similar thing, but just on the flip side. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. 
And what was it like filming your life and finally turning the camera back on yourself? Because you'd been behind the lens for a while at that point. Yeah. It was... That was was therapy, in a way. (laughs) Self-therapy. Because I couldn't really hide anything. I filmed... The most difficult thing I filmed Mm. was about about a month and a half after I told my mom that I had bought that dress... She drove me up to Boston, and I filmed an interview scene between us. Mm. And it's still, for me, the most difficult thing to watch that I filmed, but it was heated. And there, she said some hurtful things, but I definitely said some hurtful things. And I haven't, to this day, watched the full scene, but in that moment, I was forced to see the, honestly, the more, the worst the less pleasant side of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't putting it on for the camera. It was like, like I had to look at, I didn't really look at myself, you know? I think in a way, I, I took out my internal frustration with my gender in, honestly, a, I, I think you can call it like a, ver- verbally some, a verbally abusive way to the people I love. Mm. and that's like the that's the truth like um i'm not proud of that or anything but i think in seeing that and having to edit that footage i was like okay (laughs) i yeah no it's just i was forced to see myself as i saw all sides of myself because there's a Again, on social media, there's a person that you want to show, but that was the truth. And I really had to wrestle with it. And in wrestling with it, I came to understand where that anxiety was coming from, where this nastiness was really coming from. And it was because of this nastiness I held inside me um, that I really just kind of hated myself, you know? And I think you can't really show love to your loved ones if you really hate yourself. So, yeah, I feel like that's what the ultimate outcome of was (laughs) for filming. Yeah. That's amazing. Let's take a quick bathroom break. Yeah, please. This has been a jump in content. We are now having a conversation. Um, We're continuing a conversation about rawness and um, emotional work as, like, trans femmes and trans people. So I'll continue. So in terms of presenting to the public, another trans woman told me, pretty early on in my transition process that um, that she smiles more because when she smiles, she appears more feminine and that helps her pass. And I remind myself of that sometimes because I feel I personally wear my anxiety on my face mm-hmm. and I don't look happy mm-hmm. when I'm fearful. Yeah. But I'm more fearful when I look like I'm not passing left. It's like this whole thing. And then I try to put the smile on. Then it's a nervous smile, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's complicated. Yeah, and um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and, like, your own experiences. Um, We briefly talked about different standards for, like, people of color who are trans and, and people who are white or white passing who are trans. And I would love if you could continue talking about Sure. So, I 
think I remind myself. I remind myself like sometimes some days are very difficult if everyone's staring at you. If I was misgendered by someone that's close to me mm-hmm. or that I look up to, and I feel deep anxiety and depression. And it's sometimes easy to only see my experience as hmm. like I see myself as I don't know not having privilege mm-hmm. because of these things that happen to me, but. Mm-hmm. I, I just try to remind myself and stay conscious of, of course, I'm, I have privilege. I have, like, white privilege. And that's helped me get into all the spaces where I began to self-identify. And it's just, it's affected my entire life. And there's a lot I have to be, um, there's a lot that I'm lucky to have and that I wouldn't have if it wasn't for... Um, my privilege so it's just this tension sometimes but also this process where I'm a, I'm aware of yeah the oppression that I face but I'm also aware that there's a lot of pressure that I don't face um, do you think yeah. that awareness plays into that um, that sense of, of a private and public self that you brought up earlier or like, and how you conceptualized yourself in that like you mentioned sometimes uh, subconsciously you're seeing yourself in ways uh in different ways you know and then you have to say oh wait but i have to read back onto myself what i know other people are seeing like and what is that process like for you and how does that feel hmm i feel like public life is a constant process of coming out Mm. because many people read me as male many people read me as a gay man and it's a constant process of telling people they're wrong and <laughs> that I am a trans woman. And I mean, it's hardest, I think, when interacting with men mm-hmm. because it was through interacting with men that I like, studied their ways and I learned how to present myself in a way that would make me pass as someone that's not one not queer and one not um, not anything but cis. And I find still often in talking to cis men, I find myself com- becoming my old self in a way mm. because that's just what I knew for a really, really long time. And I don't know, it's, it's hard sometimes. Like, it's kind of this like self-fulfilling or not even self-fulfilling. If somebody reads me as male, I'm such like a vulnerable person that that'll affect how I see myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, and I really try to be centered in my self-knowledge, but I can't help but feel affected by how people see me. So that's probably what I struggle with the most. Um, I mean, there's some days where if I if I get misgendered a lot, and just there's I mean there's many subtle ways of 
um, not respect that people don't respect my womanhood. I don't feel like a woman. I don't feel like I look at myself in the mirror and I see kind of this weird monstrous creature that I'm really unhappy with. And I can only think about like, what if my, if I was cis, like I wouldn't have to feel any of this. Like, but so I don't know. That's kind of what I struggle with. I think I really wish I could be like, I don't care what other people think, but I really care what other, or like, <laughs> I don't know, it's just like so deeply embedded in my personality that like, I have to surround myself with people that see me as I see my, as I want to be seen and as I see myself, because otherwise I'll start to doubt my identity and probably fall into old habits. Yeah, no, thank you very much for sharing that. I was um, really struck by two things and the first one was you said it's a constant process of coming out and like I was wow yeah um I don't know if you have anything more to say about that but I think I think in specifically being a non-passing trans woman I constantly have to justify my womanhood to people that don't see me as a woman or at least attempt to because even in the attempt of justifying my existence as a trans woman, which is really tiring, really emotionally exhausting, this person may see it as the rantings of someone that's mentally mentally ill or something, mm-hmm. um, because that's how they see gender. They see, they can't, and and I think it's deeply, deeply um, connected to the representation of trans women in media. And that it's only when they're the most, most passing that they've sometimes given the the helm of womanhood, mm-hmm. womanhood. But if they're not, I mean, like, besides, I think Hari Neff, um, who's pretty in the public eye, um, there really aren't a lot of non-passing trans women in mainstream media. And I think that would completely change a lot of people's ideas about gender if there were, but I think there's all going to be a long way until we're anywhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, why do you think there's a preoccupation with, um, the passing trans woman? Because... Because the most harmful, let me step back. Um, The most harmful mainstream ideology surrounding gender is that there are real men and there are real women. And this affects people that aren't trans too, a lot. I think it affects everyone. And I, I think with With that ideology in the back of like the general populace's mind, it doesn't fit that somebody assigned male at birth could be a woman. It just doesn't make sense. And it, the only way they can possibly see them as something other than a man is if they fit the false idea of a woman that every woman has to mm-hmm. um, 
wrestle with, but it's that if you're trans, you have to be super high femme all the time mm-hmm. to, to have your womanhood. You have to, like, okay, the thing I struggle with the most, in a way, is my voice. I had quote-unquote male puberty where my voice lowered, mm-hmm. and it's a struggle for all trans women unless you're very lucky and it's a very recent thing you take um puberty blockers and you take hormones prior to having your first puberty or whatever um Hmm. but i'm getting off track a little bit but no you're good keep going go wherever you need to go it's just there's I, i took this audio class and the teacher literally said this range of frequency is the woman range, and this range of frequency is the male range. And I'm sitting there, a trans woman, like, okay, great. So, like, that's what it is. Like, that's literally, we, like, literally see, like, sound waves as being gendered. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, how deep um, everyone's understanding of gender is. And I, I can, I've considered training my voice to sound higher, and I've tried a little bit, but oh my god, is it hard. Like, when you talk, you talk, you know? How can I... Every word that I want to process through my mouth, how can I, like... You have to, like, sing it. You have to, like, really deep... And that's such... It's so hard. <laughs> like, it's such... There's already so much labor in trying to appear passing, but just when it's, like... You can't even say a word nat- naturally without someone thinking you're not what you want. You know, it's... I hate that. <laughs> I really deeply hate that, but I don't think there's nothing I can really do about it. So, I don't know. Yeah, and it sounds like you're constantly in some process of, like, performing labor. Yes. You know? And yes. Do you feel tired at the end of the day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially on a hard day. Yeah. On a hard day, yeah, I feel... I mean, I feel like there's no room to have even thoughts. I'll dissociate. I'll completely dissociate and probably fall into like self-destructive habits because I don't even have the energy to muster up um, a sense of humanity for my own self. I guess. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you still, though, put effort into mustering up a. a sense of humanity for the people outside of you though mm-hmm. and what is that like well interesting question um it's that's i, I feel like that's shifted over my mat- over the process of my i just would call it even my maturity as like a person but maybe my maturity as a trans woman and that's when i first came out I was very vocal and if anyone I don't know misgendered me or said something that was transphobic I would refute that or I would I would you know I would not stand for it and I would I don't know essentially like I don't know um just kind of argue with them I guess what I'm saying but one thing I've learned to pick my battles a bit more because I don't have the energy to deal with every single thing I see that's hurtful and 
transphobic or transmisogynistic. Um, but also, I just think about the people that say these things. They are subjected to this this harmful mainstream ideology that's perpetuated by media that I was too. And I like I think about how I didn't know the things I know now at one point in my life. And this person is a human that's it's the same thing, you know? I, I had the benefit of education and I don't know. So I guess that's what I remind myself of. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that actually. No, it, it does. On those after those hard days, do you have any self care rituals? I do. Um, art is my self care ritual. Um, draw hand drawn doing hand drawn animation, which is a very tedious process, transports me outside of my body completely, and. I feel that sometimes it's only in being outside my body and diving into um, a world that's completely separate from this one, which is completely fantastical in a way and separate from my body, that I can come back to my body. Hmm. I have to. I have to leave it. I have to leave it, and it's um, cathartic and um, therapeutic to do art because I'm just able to forget about like my bodily concerns for a bit. And even though it is my body, it's like my hand uh, or my hands that are creating this world. It's like, that's the world that I'm living in for that moment. And I always, it always happens that I'll like have a bathroom break or something and I go to the mirror and I look like the calmest I'll ever look is after like an hour or two of animating. And uh, it always just centers me and I don't always remember to do it, and sometimes I'll do more self-destructive habits, but when I choose to do art, like, it's always worth it. Wow. Yeah. What is your creative process like? I... Some... Hmm. It's sometimes twofold. Sometimes when I'm making art, it'll be fairly envisioned before mm. I dive into it. Um, I would say with... When I make a, when I'm working on a film, I think a lot about the concept prior to diving into it, and I would say I, I really, I'll use note cards. I'll really flesh out the concept before I even touch the art. But the other end of me is sometimes I like to, I'll do a gesture with charcoal on a paper, and then I'll create something based off that gesture. So there weren't really, so the concepts kind of come to me while I'm creating that art, um, which I kind of enjoy. It's like a little bit more, I would call it a bit more experimental um, and a bit more playful. So yeah, I would say there's kind of two parts of my creative process. Mm. Which of your films are you the most proud of? I'm the most proud of I'm the most proud of, or, or rather, um, the film. The, sorry, the film that I'm the most proud of is "Bring Her Some Beauty," mm -hmm. which is 
part personal documentary, part animation. And I feel that it's the one work, it's the one piece of art that I've worked on where I feel like it accesses every part of my creative self, but also represents every part of my human self. Um, and I think balances my deep interest in representing reality through observational documentary footage and my deep interest in non-representational art and, and creating abstract worlds of color and texture and shape and line. Um, and I think it's a delicate balance between those two parts of myself and yeah. How would you describe your artistic voice? So I, I think my artistic voice is largely observational in a way. I, I love documentary for that reason. I love, look, I love observing, observing life. And then as a filmmaker, boiling it down into what I see as representational of the spirit of either that person or that event or that thing. And to me, I, always, I just think of it in terms of a spectrum always. And that when I'm representing a person, I never want to show them as one or as two-dimensional mm. beings. I, I'm interested in depth and I'm interested in the often contradicting elements of a person. And I like, I think it's important to represent that through um, documentary, but maybe more generally speaking, um, I think I've been thinking about this actually a little bit recently. I think when it comes to when it comes to visual art i like questioning the body mm. and i like going outside of the body but also connecting the body to the abstract because i think that to me represents how what dissociation feels like for mm. me i feel like i'm often not in my body especially when i'm feeling really insecure and i like thinking about how to represent that through art so would you consider the body one of the major themes in your work? I think so. Yeah. I think so, but maybe in a way that's not obvious. Yeah. Because to me, the body can be many... It could be maybe a mental state more so. Mm. Um, and that's where I feel like I'm more interested in like psychological reality. Mm -hmm. So... A psychological makeup of an event or a person or a thing. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. Um... So I was wondering if you could tell me maybe the themes or psychological makeup of two of your films that I've watched. Um, the first was Feather by Feather, um, which I'll describe. It is a very ASMR-y sort of film. It's a close-up of a lot of heavily textured like metals, but also skin. And what I noticed about it was that it made things that are familiar that you might see in the everyday incredibly alien and then had this amazing kind of like backdrop sort of not backdrop but a proliferation of these like bright colors it still made me 
feel like I wasn't supposed to be seeing them or that they were like alien. And I'm just wondering like, what, what was your intention with that? Um, so the video Feather by Feather was a part of a performance art piece in which I, I wanted to dive into the feelings of uncomfortableness with my own body, jealousy mm. over a cis woman's body, um, the envy that comes with that. And in a way that the performance art piece gets into is, is that in attempting to reach that level of um, cis womanhood, I end up, and it's represented through the metaphor of flight. So in attempting to get wings, I end up falling. Mm. I end up, it, essentially it's an unattainable level of being that just isn't accessible to me. And even if I make do all the labor to be a certain way, it just is impossible to reach. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I've read, I don't know, I've read some trans woman, something about a trans woman where she said, this always sticks with me, that um, like the life as a trans woman is having this idea of yourself in your mind and never being able to reach it. Wow. Which I thought was deeply saddening, but I also, in a way, come to understand that as my reality. Um, so I think feather by feather, I wanted to kind of dive into that. And maybe the, the, the otherworldliness of, of the textures that are in that video I think is representative of where my mind goes when I dissociate. Mm. I don't see the world as it is. It, like I don't see the world in terms of how, it, like, how objects are functional. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I see the world in terms of, like, the wood grain on this table, or the lines in the tiles on the ground, or the way the light is affecting the doorway right there. I just focus on, in a way, very formal textural aspects of life around us and um, I don't know I think it may be representing that through the video it may be I think alluded to the kind of mental state that I go into maybe yeah yeah I think that is a really nice way of putting it because in the video very little of the objects that you're focusing on are kind of shown in full or in action or what they quote unquote are supposed to be doing. It's a lot of them at rest um, or pieces, like it's just a tip of something, which was, I thought was incredibly beautiful. Um, the second film, I wasn't sure if you had created all of it because it said directed by you and I wasn't sure if you made it, but it was called Wax. Oh yeah. Did you make yes. all of that? I made everything but the, um the production design and animation 
uh, I collaborated on with a friend. Yeah. Would uh, you like to describe the, the narrative arc of Wax? Sure. Um, so Wax is about a character unnamed who lives in a basement who melts down red wax into little figures that he then populates a small village of in the basement of his floor, uh, rather, in the, in the floor of, of the basement that he lives in. Um, and when this character makes these wax figures, it's a ritual for him. He lights incense, he gets into a mind space that I think is similar to maybe how I feel when I'm making art. And once he completes one of his figurines, he places it in this little red wax village and before his eyes, they come to life. And he just makes his figure and he places it down and all of the little wax figurines are kind of they kind of come out of their little hut, their little wax huts and they stare at this figure in a way that's somewhat unsettling and the character then sees that the wax figure he just made has a crack in their head and they're they're not perfect the way he needs them to be and this breaks him he gets really frustrated and he runs back over to the, his flame in which he shapes them and he tries to fix the head he's like i'm just going to try to smooth it out a little bit but it ends up melting half of the character and this just sends him further into a rage and he runs over into this very red saturated part of the basement uh, where he hits a button and an alarm goes off and um, an unseen figure kind of enters through the basement and gathers up all of the wax figures as the character hides behind um, a pillar and he drops a package of baby bell cheese which has red wax coverings and then that guy leaves with all of the wax figures um, and after he leaves the basement, the character comes over to the wax slowly at first, but then rushes over, rips open the package, <laughs> rips open one of the baby bell cheeses, eats it, and then immediately starts forming another figure. And he places it on the ground and stares at it and that's kind of that's the resolution. He feels satisfied once more with his creation. Mm, so, lovely. What was the creative process of coming up with the idea and then executing it? I had this idea. I think it was fresh. So I made that my senior year, but I had this idea freshman year, where I would I liked baby bell cheese and I would create little sculptures out of baby bell out of the wax. So. I was like, what if there was a character that only did that? That's, that's his obsession, that was his life. 
And then I had to kind of develop this world in which, like, why would he just be doing that? Like, what's his sustenance? Well, it's cheese. <laughs> and, and what, like, what's the conflict in his life? And I guess the conflict is that um, somebody takes the figures from him and sells them off. Um, and he's just kind of in this repetitive cycle of making them and losing them and making them and losing them. Um, so, I don't know, yeah. And then I guess it was just kind of, I wanted... Maybe the more thematic underpinnings of it... I'm sorry I got so into detail about that. The more thematic underpinnings of it are, um, I think, about perfectionism and about how art can be... It can be therapeutic and it, it can be ritualistic, but it can also be... It can also... It can be obsessive. It can become obsessive in a negative sense, mm. and um, yeah, I, <laughs> um, can lead one to very destructive behaviors. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Sorry, if I was no, too no, no. It was really good. Um, do you collaborate with other artists? And have you since you've been in New York since July first, right? Um, have you come into contact with other like queer or trans artists and like yeah, yeah. no um, I, I've come into contact with some queer artists that I met through um, how did I meet this person it's a friend of a friend but they're a fashion designer mm-hmm. uh, they go to FIT and um, I will say I I haven't gotten I haven't created any art here besides my own art my personal like some animation that I'm working on um but we've been talking about doing a collaborative photo shoot together mm-hmm. um I also create a lot like my girlfriend Delilah is like my main creative partner and in creating all of my documentary work like she produces it and she is for one thing obviously like a main person in the film itself but she just essentially adds a whole nother dimension to the film um she's hilarious so often the moments of comedy are are from her (laughs) and um she just has a mind for logistics so she like makes everything kind of (laughs) happen when it wouldn't probably do just myself um yes and then but yeah um yeah yeah um so where are you meeting like other trans artists in new york specifically like how where are they (laughs) (laughs) where are they um honestly like um, as, I, as I mentioned before, I I guess I kind of had a I was a little overwhelmed when I first came here, and for a little while I didn't go out as much. And when I did, I, I feel like I just I kept on um, playing these scenarios in my mind where maybe I'd get hurt or maybe something would happen to me. Um, But that's kind of, 
And it might have also gone with the heat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the heat kind of fueled like some paranoia a little bit. Um, but I kind of finally feel like I'm like there's a I know that there's a community of trans artists mm-hmm. and I just created young people that I want to get involved with that I haven't that much yet, mm-hmm. but that I know will happen. I'm kind of an introverted person mm-hmm. in a way, so. I just don't go out that much. Are there specific organizations or collectives that you're aware of in NY? Mm-hmm. You don't even have to be part of Oh, yeah. Life. Okay. Actually, yes, yes. Um, yeah, there's this place called the Silent Barn nearby, okay. which is a DIY venue that I... I should have mentioned this already. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, yeah, it's a DIY venue. It's a music venue. But I actually came here about a month earlier to show one of my films. Mm-hmm during this 24-hour show that they put on. Mm. So it was mostly music. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly small small bands or single performers. There were poetry readings. There was performance art. And there were film screenings. So I met Yasmina, who lives there, because they have an artist-in-residency oh. program. Oh. Um, and she curated um, this hour... Of films and I got contacted um, or I was able to get in contact with her through a friend and when I was there for that show um, and I wasn't there for all 24 hours I was there for like two or three I saw a lot of trans women perform mm-hmm. I met um, two other trans women Lucy who's one that we've kept in contact with mm-hmm. and she's a poet and I saw her do some readings that I was very affected by because they were very heavy and in a way, I don't know, we, we sat down, we talked, and we were able to get into a conversation that only trans women could talk mm-hmm. about, and that was for us, like, our struggles with passing versus non-passing, and how the, the community of trans women is not just, like, like, immediately like i mean there's a lot of conflict Mm -hmm. in a way and part of that is there's a bit of a competitiveness Mm. sometimes to passing that i think can kind of like when i first came out as trans i thought that if you saw another trans woman on like public transport you would be able to like connect immediately just Mm -hmm. be like like, hey you know i see you i see you Mm -hmm. but a lot of the time what happens if is that person doesn't that trans woman probably doesn't want to interact with you because that's kind of clocking them mm. and it might out them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my interactions with trans women have been avoid, like wow. our gazes avoiding each other. Not all the time. There's been at least, I mean, I, I, there's a handful of, I mean, not handful, there's been many interactions where I've actually talked to different trans women that I just met on the street. Um, when I lived in Boston, um, did I say live in Boston? Sorry. Mm-hmm. But, don't love my words um that i met on the street or in public transport um but it's not those are a bit more few and far between like i uh i took some classes at mass art and um there was a barista that was a trans woman who never really we didn't really ever i got coffee there every day that i was taking classes Mm -hmm. but we never talked and i think partially because i think she I don't know. Again, it's I hate passing as a concept, but I think she passed maybe more so than I did. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So it's 
it's, it's complicated. But I think a lot of people don't really know about that yeah. outside of the trans yeah. um, community. I did not know about that at all. Um, yeah. Is there other like sources of conflict in the trans community that you've experienced while you've been here? I've, I've, I haven't been here for too long, mm-hmm. but in Boston, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it's, it kind of sometimes is philosophical differences maybe, or, or political different, like, I don't know, I knew this one trans woman who, I think we just had a very different ideas about what it, what it means to be trans, and I remember she said something like, we were talking about, um, Bagley, which is the Boston Alliance for Gay Lesbian Youth, but mm-hmm. it might. Anyway, um, it's a community group, um, and a lot of a lot of young trans um, youth come there, but also I mean people of all ages. And I was thinking I was talking to her about getting involved with it. And she's like, she said something like, like that's for like, that's for like amateur. Something where she kind of derided it. And I couldn't help but think that it was a little bit because of her, she was very wealthy, Mm -hmm. right? And she has resources that a lot of trans women don't. And I think to her, like she didn't need, she didn't need that. Mm -hmm. So she kind of passed it off as something not worth and being involved. I don't know. So it's just, I think the conflict maybe comes to who can do what. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I know that like in social media, um, sometimes I struggle like with sometimes, I mean, a trans woman recently that I'm friends with posted a lot about um, her gender confirmation surgery Mm -hmm. that she got in in Thailand. Mm And I'm really happy for her, but I didn't really find that she acknowledged all the time about what resources led to, like, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't really see some sort of awareness of, yeah, her privilege. And it kind of, it kind of upset me a little bit because I wanted to just be happy for her, but I found that in celebrating, I don't know, this isn't a feeling I'm necessarily proud of, but in celebrating her womanhood and in certain language that she chose to express it with, it kind of felt like she was saying like, she was like, now I feel like a woman. And in a way to me implying that if you're a trans woman with a penis, like you're not really a woman yet. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, that's just how I interpreted it. I don't think she meant it that way but I couldn't help but feel like a kind of a deep envy. I don't know. So that's, I guess, maybe the more conflict Hmm. element. Yeah. We're going to come back to this after a brief pee break. All right. So back to conflict in the trans community. (laughs) I actually might have, I don't know if I have much more that I, I don't Mm -hmm. know. I think I might have been. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like the sort of divide between like trans women with financial means and mm. people who aren't of financial means and is that a common occurrence do you think or 
in your experience, even if it's not in New York, but yeah, I think it's 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 economic, mm-hmm. um, and it's also very location and geographic based mm-hmm. because so I went to school in Boston, and Fenway Health is a really good healthcare program that's very. I would call it like transliterate. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Like they're so they're progress they're so progressive that they don't, for one thing, have this singular understanding of what it means to be trans. Because oftentimes, I think in the medical community, um, getting hormones comes down to saying about five things that fits the criteria that the medical community mm-hmm. comes to understand is what trans is so um and otherwise they'll deny you medical care mm-hmm. but fenway isn't like that um i think they have a more nuanced understanding of what it means to be trans and that's where i got hormones um and and they're quick too i was able to get hormones within a month of, oh. maybe a month and a half of meeting them wow. going there for the first time um but i think yeah i think geographic is the geographic location is very um, influential in whether you can medically transition. I think, and then I think, I don't know, one thing I've been trying to kind of put to words lately is like, um, I feel like I can't help but have this kind of privileged like academic understanding Mm. of gender that I think doesn't isn't what a lot of people understand to be gender and what understand to be trans and I think I think it's someone talked about in like the show like transparent Mm. but like there's um I don't know I guess I'm saying I like just because I identify as trans doesn't doesn't get rid of the fact that I grew up. It doesn't make me understand the experience of um, maybe like like a trans person of color mm-hmm. that hasn't had the same privileges that I. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, and maybe when I don't know. I think. There's obviously a common ground um, of shared experience, but also not. Like, the... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. No, that made sense to but... me. Um, I'm pretty much out of questions. Okay. Um, but if there's anything else you'd like to talk about, we can. I have nowhere to be. <laughs> Hmm. Hmm. Hit on a lot. <laughs> you have a lot. No, I'm saying we hit. We hit oh, on a lot. I, was like, okay, no, I have a lot. <laughs> you can do that. Yeah. Oh, I guess maybe my la- I have like two last questions. Okay. And one was just you mentioned pretty briefly, um, like you said first and second puberty, and I'd love oh, to yeah. expound it upon like what you meant by that. Oh, okay. Okay. Sure. Um. So, first puberty, for a lot of trans women or people that are going on 
hormones is the puberty that occurred during your early teenage mm-hmm. years um, that probably had effects that you're not really a fan of. Like for me, mm-hmm. like that's when my voice lowered. That's when parts of my face like masculinized. That's when my fat was redistributed in a way that I, I don't know. All that bodily stuff. Your hair gets darker, facial hair, blah, 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 blah. Second puberty occurs when you go on hormones. Mm. And it can happen whenever you start hormones. But for me, it started when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And it's very, like, it's very much like puberty in a lot of ways. Um, because it's just almost more condensed, I would say. Oh. But it's... To me, when I started hormones, it was like the beginning of my girlhood. Okay. That's how I think of it. Interesting. Um, because trans women were denied their girlhoods, so there's a lot of trends, even in trans women fashion, mm-hmm. that allude to the fact that it's in a way their girlhood years or their teenage years being realized. Can you give me an example? Sure. Chokers. 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 Okay. Interesting. Uh, huge huge trans fashion trend um, partly because it covers up the mm-hmm. um, quote-unquote Adam's apple mm-hmm. um, but also because it's like what we saw girl, girls doing when they were teenagers mm-hmm. that we didn't have access to yeah. and it's us kind of embracing that now so that's one um, and I don't know, for me, like, my fashion sense has kind of evolved a lot, even just in a year and a half. And I would say when it first started, and Delilah can attest to this, mm-hmm. I was very, like, girly, girly, or, like, like what, like, a girl's understanding of women's fashion. Yes. <laughs> like, so, so that's what I think. Yeah, and then just another, you know, maybe regard, I think my sexuality changed a little bit when I had second puberty in a way that's similar maybe to what puberty, you know, puberty looks like for many girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And what other regards? I mean, your body's changing, you know? Like, my body's still changing. I've been on hormones for a little more than a year now. Um, growing breasts, like, you know, it's, <laughs> it is puberty. Like, it, it, you know, and when it, when I started hormones, it really kind of made me think about how like I don't know age is a construct in a way mm-hmm. that like I can I feel like my girlhood is happening now and that may be denied by a lot of different people mm-hmm. for different reasons but like the way I see it is like I think puberty really is like a process of kind of becoming coming into one's humanity maybe coming into one's humanity and I think that I did that in my early 20s rather than because I never really saw myself as a full person prior to that yeah that makes a lot of sense to me it's very wow the idea of coming into humanity rather than it it being a bodily process I think is perfect (laughs) perfect and so I guess maybe my last question is how does it feel to be you now like right here right now like it feels good to be where I am now um I just woke up at 7 30 yesterday um I put on a semi-professional outfit and some 
wedges and I like was walking down the street with my clutch you know about to get on the J train to go to Manhattan and I was just I had this like big dumb smile on my face (laughs) where I was just like holy shit like this is what I've always wanted maybe it's not what I've always known that I've always wanted but I just felt like right I felt right and I felt Partially, I was like, pinch me, is this a dream? <laughs> but, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I'm coming in, I've come into my own, and I'm operating in the world. You know, I'm not just hiding behind closed doors. And it's nice to, like, although it's never easy, but to be walking down the street feeling like I'm myself. And, like, the sun is shining on me. And I'm actually a person in this world is everything so yeah it's pretty great (laughs) i'm so glad and thank you so much for sharing of course